0: The Sermon on the Mount, after telling his disciples their earthly disposition. That is to be, that they are poor, mourning, hungry, thirsty, meek, dependents, all dependent in need of mercy. He then tells them this Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is only used as an adjective two times in the entire New Testament. Here in Matthew 5, 7, and also in Hebrews 2, 17, as Hebrews describes our magnificent, merciful high priest. Mercy as a noun, though, is used 27 times, and not one time is it applied to any other human, only to Jesus and to the Father. What God desires, what God has shown, once tells them, he once tells them listening when we study the parable of the Good Samaritan, he showed us in the parable and then said, go and do likewise. We're capable of merciful acts. I've seen them. But they're infrequent. And they're, forgive the term, unnatural for us. We have to do something against our nature in order to perform a merciful act because it isn't in our nature. So they're infrequent and they're forced. They're not along with our nature. In fact, he has to give a spiritual gift of mercy to the church in Romans twelve eight to make sure that somebody in the church can give merciful acts. We can do acts like him But there's a huge gap, a huge difference between us and him when it comes to mercy. The difference, by the way, is not external. It's not that we perform more. It's not that we do more. It's not external. It's internal. We don't have the insides that Jesus had. It's spiritual, not physical. The difference is inside. The difference is he has guts that we don't. So there's a word that goes deeper than this of mercy. It's translated all 13 times that it's used as compassion. I've shared it with you before. It's a favorite Greek word of mine because of how it sounds. It's a wonderful sounding word. Splanknizomai. Isn't that beautiful? Splanknizomai. Again, it's used 13 times and the verb in this case comes from the noun splanknon. And it's translated as bowels, intestines, the heart, the lungs, the liver. So splanknizomai is actually the verb of guts. And I love that it sounds just like it is. Splank, guts. The first time that you ever saw it was in Matthew 9, verse 36. Jesus, when he sees the crowds, he has what? Compassion. There's our word right there. 13 times used, this is the first time in the New Testament that it's used. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. That should tell you something right off the bat because we do not wake up in the morning with a natural inclination to have compassion on crowds, do we? No, Crowds is what get in our way. Crowds is what messes with our peace. Crowds means I wait in line. Crowds means I sit in traffic jams. Uh Uh-uh, no way, no how. He, though, when he sees a crowd, he has what? Compassion. Because people are harassed and helpless. The sheep without a shepherd. See, it's not just wanting to be merciful. He was moved His guts, he had guts for them. As natural as his guts as a human being were inside, he had that natural compassion for even those who are completely unlovable on this planet, a crowd. And the reason that I believe that they attribute it to his insides is because to them, the insides are a mystery. Imagine yourself in the ancient world. Never seen a CAT scan or an MRI or even seen a copy of Gray's Anatomy. The inside of someone is a mystery. They had no idea how it worked. And so when they observed Jesus, when the Bible writers observed him, they said, you know what? There's something about him. Some mystery inside him allows to have this compassion that I can't seem to drum up. So they assigned this word, this one Greek word to him to mean his compassion. It's in his very nature. Jesus just doesn't do right things. He is right, period. He's rightness, he's righteousness. He is right, that's who he is. Just as God does not just do loving things, God is love. The things come, they flow, they're natural. See, the best we can hope for in these fallen vessels is a few merciful deeds, a few good things, a few good works, but tell you what, that gets us nowhere in the kingdom of heaven because there isn't anybody who's going to count them at the gates of the kingdom of heaven, and we don't have a minimum standard of merciful acts. We don't balance out the scales. Depart from me. He said to a few people who could perform some pretty amazing merciful acts, depart from me, I never knew you. Even his church, the remnant church of Bible prophecy, us living in the end time, he says to them, here's what I have against you. You claim that you've prospered and need nothing. You think you've balanced out the scales. You think you do enough good works. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He has something for us to buy. And he gives us the faith to believe that we have it. That our righteousness does not lie in a few worked up acts. Our righteousness lies in faith in Christ, who is right and decides to make us right in the heart and the eyes of God. We need saving. We need to be given our guts back. We had these guts at one time. We're gonna get them back. Paul says, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot what? Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the what? The imperishable can't be done. Doesn't matter how many merciful acts, It doesn't matter how merciful you appear to be, you're still flesh and blood. You still have to work it up. You don't have his guts. So he says, listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We'll not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So it's coming. It's coming. We'll get those guts back. I can't wait to have those guts. So in Luke 15, he tells a series of three parables and as with most of his parables, again, he's speaking to a particular audience. Who is the audience that he's speaking to? The inside circle or what? The outside circle. That's why the parables are Jesus speaking in his what? In his outside voice, okay? And 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 we have two groups of people here that he's speaking to. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them these parables. This says this parable, but we know there are three coming up in this chapter. By the way, it falls on the heels of the parable that he told that we did at communion. In fact, there are five of these real quick, right in a row. Two groups of people here. The outsiders... Represented by who? The tax collectors and the sinners. They don't belong inside, right? So the parable is really for them, isn't it? Jesus speaking in his outside voice. And then you have a group that claims to be on the inside. The Pharisees and the scribes claims to be insiders. Difference between the two? The outsiders come to listen to Jesus. The insiders just grumble because Jesus is spending time with the outsiders, eating with them, drinking with them, speaking to them in his outside voice. He tells, when he tells a parable, he has to explain it to them. The insiders always have to have the parable explained to them. The outsiders seem to get it. They just understand it. They always, they always just hear it. And when they do, they find their way to the inside. So two real quick that come, we won't spend uh, a lot of time on them because frankly, they're hard to figure out at times. But in the context of the one that we will look at today, they're very, very interesting to be in the context. You have the parable of the lost sheep, you have the parable of the lost coin, and then the third one is the parable of the lost what? Of the lost son, okay? Interesting with the sheep and the coin though. They both have almost the same introduction. Jesus says, which one of you having a 100 sheep? Is he speaking to everybody? Are there shepherds in that audience? I bet there are. But he also is asking to imagine if you were a shepherd and you owned a hundred sheep. Which one of you who have a hundred sheep? And then he goes on from there. And then with the lost coin, he says the same. What woman having 10 coins? It's interesting. Which of you? What woman? Who's he speaking to in the group? Everyone. He's not leaving anybody out, is he? Which one of you? What woman? He's speaking to men and women. He's speaking to everybody. It's interesting. In both, he concludes that both the shepherd and the woman come to find something that they lost. And when they find something that they lost, remember, the shepherd has 100 sheep, he leaves the 99, he goes, finds the one that wanders off. Woman has 10 coins, she sweeps the house uh, completely in order to find that one coin. And then they both come to the same conclusion at the end of each of their little parables. When they find it, they both say, rejoice with me, for I found what I lost. They call their friends and their family and they throw a party for one coin, one sheep. More joy than 99, more joy than nine coins. Our economics, remember we did the economy of the parables kingdom, right? We did the the outside voice economy. In our economy, this is not good. This is not good sound fiscal policy. You got 99%. What are you wasting so much resources on 1% for? But these two, (laughs) they party over one. So it's gonna bring us to one. We've already heard from a shepherd. We've already heard from a woman who appears to be a housewife. And now we're going to hear from a father. Jesus said, there was a man who had what? Two sons. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had, traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. First son demands his inheritance. He doesn't want to wait until he dies. It's not unusual, by the way. And also to point out, he's not sinning. Laws say that inheritance is his and whoever owns it can do whatever they want. The father can do whatever he wants in this situation. He decides to give it to him. Like I said, he's not sinning, he's not breaking the law. He just wants it. So he takes it to a far, far country. He gets lost, he's now, the son is now what? He's lost. So what is he known as then? What does he get to be known as in our Bibles? Well, I took a look at, uh, these are just from a couple of my study Bibles, okay? You'll see the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the what? The prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal and his brother. Where did that come from? By the way, it's not a Greek word. It's not from the text. Guess who calls him the prodigal? The church does. We started calling him the prodigal just around the third century. Prodigal is a Latin word even, it's not even Greek. We're gonna look at it in a little bit. But the coin and the sheep were lost and now all of a sudden this kid, he's not lost, he's a prodigal now. Prodigal doesn't mean lost by the way. We'll get to it. When he had spent everything, he spent it all, a severe what? A severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. I love, I love that Jesus has a Hollywood scriptwriter working for him. Because usually the go-to thing in a Hollywood script is some sort of natural disaster. And in the Bible, the go-to disaster is a famine. Why? Well, because they live in adjacent and part of the second largest desert on the entire planet. Famine is serious. Famine happens. By the way, just to to let you know, uh, there's a a food organization on the planet who keeps tracks. And did you know that at any given moment on planet Earth, there are at least 27 major famines happening in other places in the world? At least. Famines. Famines. So he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him in his field to feed his what? To feed his pigs. And he gladly would have filled himself with the pods. Okay? You know what the pods are, don't you? (laughs) I I hate to put it this way, especially for my wife, because whenever you see pods, they're carob pods. Carob pods. Which means humans didn't eat carob pods in Bible days. The pigs ate them. In fact, the Talmud says if you are now uh, uh, relegated to eat carob pods, it's time to do something about your situation. And those of us who were expecting chocolate and got carob, you know what I'm talking about, right? Something snaps right here. Eating the pig's food, something snaps, something happens to him. So he says, he comes to him what? He comes to myself, he comes to himself. He comes back to who he was, which we'll talk about that. I'm not sure that who he was is actually so much different from who he is. It's just that at this particular moment, he just found a way, he just found a way to try to make a plan. Like I said, the rabbis wrote, if you find yourself eating carob pods, you, you need to do something about your situation. So this, this kid says, yeah, the rabbis were right, I need to do something. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's, what? Servants have bread enough to spare but here I am dying of hunger. Somehow he knows that his father still has bread enough for his slaves so he says then I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him father I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Treat me like an employee. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? Talmud says he needs a plan, he came up with it. Sounds, like, sounds good to me, right? Son goes off with his father's inheritance, blows it, wastes it, comes back now to apply for a servant's job. That's a good plan. It worked too, except for one thing. The father's guts His guts mess up the whole plan. He set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with, there's our word. There's Jesus' guts. Jesus, out of his own mouth, takes his guts and he puts it into the character of this parable. He does it three times, by the way. Here, the good Samaritan had it. And I forget where the other one is. We'll find it, though. We're studying the parables, so we'll find it, right? The Samaritan, when he saw the the man beaten among thieves, he had the same urge. He had the same guts. Father saw him, he was filled with compassion, and he ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. There it is. That's our word. Son's not expecting this. But I love the fact that he's probably been rehearsing it all the way there, you know? And even though the father just told him exactly what he wanted from him, he's gonna rehearse his line anyway. He's gonna perform. I've been rehearsing all this way, so I'm going to perform. The son says, Father, I've sinned against you. I I imagine him looking at his script. The father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But that's where the script ends, because the father interrupts it and says to his slaves, quickly. The slave that the son was uh, offering a job application to be, he calls them out and says, bring out a robe, what kind? The best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. By the way, giving the ring back, that's a huge statement right there. Because the ring is the seal. The ring means he's back in the family. Not a slave, not a hired hand, but he's back in the family. land thwarted, servant out, son in. And just like the shepherd and the woman, what does the father do? He throws a party. I didn't have the verse in there, but he throws a party. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and it is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, we already know that this God is celebrating this one son. We already know that Jesus says that when one, just one, not 99, but one, not 10, but one, not two, but one, when just one finds his way to Jesus, all heaven celebrates. He's already told us that. So far, it's no different from the others, right? He's no different from the others. All three lost something. All three found it. All three throw a party. But this one's different because of who's not there. Apparently something else needs to be addressed because we go back now to the two crowds in Jesus' audience. Tax collectors and sinners, where are they right now? They're in the party, right? They heard party and they came running. They're in there because they were invited. In the last chapter, Jesus, uh, the, the, uh, the king told his servants, those who were, who were invited first were not worthy, go out into the highways and the byways and bring everybody else in. I don't care who they are. The tax collectors and the sinners that are listening to this, they didn't need to hear anything more after the father announced, we're having a party. They're in with the son at the party. The other group, See, the simplicity of the parable is what confounds us with complexity because we hear it through an inside voice. See, we, 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 we will admit or we will confess that we are sinners, but like that guy? I don't know. Like, like a son that would do that to his father? I'm a sinner, but... I'm, I'm not sure I belong in this party. I thank you, O oh Lord. I'm not like that tax collector over there. We're a little confounded. Something is holding us back. Why? It's plain and clear the Father sees him. That compassion wells up in him and moves him. He saw him when he was a long way off. The only way you could see your son, not knowing when he's coming home, not giving you an itinerary for when he lands, all you can do to see him while he's still a long way off is you'd been looking for him all the time, constantly. Everyone else had written him off. This father gets up every morning and stands and stares at the road looking for this son. But the inside voice steps back and says, you know what, there's not something right about this. This is wonderful, but I'm not sure I belong in this celebration. I'm not sure I belong in this meeting. I'm Greg, yes, I'm an alcoholic, but. So I begin to walk away. And in my mind I say, you know what, I, it's, it's too complex to figure out. You know what, I'll just keep praying. I'll just keep going to the right church. I'll just keep going to church on the right day. I'll just keep living the right way. And hopefully somewhere, some along the line, someone will celebrate me. But I'm not sure I belong in that party. And then I hear Jesus continue the parable. He wasn't done. Now the son, the elder son, who was in the field, When he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. See, the brother's missing too. He's at where though? He's in the field. See, the second son did not disrespect his father. He remained at home, as was his duty. It looks good on the surface. He stayed, but he's got something to say about this particular party. He becomes angry and he refuses to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. He's not going in, he's gonna stay out. He won't even go in to say hi. There's an immediate contrast. The father was filled with compassion when he saw his son. The brother of this son is filled with anger. But what's interesting is there's the father again, leaving the party and going to find the son. See, I don't know if you noticed that the younger son was lost in a far country, but the older son is far away too. He's not in the house either. He's been in the field. Father comes out to plead with him and he pleads. He just unloads on the father. Listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours comes back who's devoured your property with prostitutes. You kill the fatted calf for him. I've been working like a slave because that's what I am, obeying your commands. And you've never given me one thing to celebrate. But this son of yours, he won't even call him his brother anymore, which means actually he's shown his hand. He's already distances, distanced himself from the Father, too. This son of yours. Won't even call him his brother because he won't call him his father anymore either. He's been gone a long time. He doesn't relate to stealing and devouring with prostitutes. Not even close. I thank you, O Lord. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not a thief. I'm not a rogue. I'm not an adulterer. Look at me. Call me right. I do good things. I do good deeds. I may not be perfect, but I'm so much better than that guy. You party with him, you go right ahead. You party with the one that wanders, you party with the one that gets lost in the far country, you go right ahead. See, this all began with a fundamental misunderstanding on both sons' accounts, a fundamental misunderstanding about what this parable is about. See, we immediately know the definition, or we don't, but Jerome did in the fourth century, and he knew the definition of prodigal, and that's why he assigned it to the son. The definition of prodigal is wastefully or recklessly extravagant, but look at the second definition, giving or yielding profusely. Lavishly, usually followed by of or with, lavishly abundant and profuse. See, this doesn't describe the sun, because he never he never wanted to give. He wasted. He didn't give lavishly, he took wastefully. It doesn't describe the sun. But who does it describe? Describes the father, doesn't it? It describes the shepherd. It describes the woman. Partying over just one. Parting with those that don't deserve it. Is could there be any clearer indication that Jesus uses a sheep, a lamb, if you will, a sheep and a coin? They can't repent. They can't promise to do better, they can't do any of that, yet they throw a party for them. Because that's about how much the father cares as to whether or not this son has done any repenting or promising or anything. That's what makes it wasteful in the eyes of the older brother. That's what makes it wasteful for those who are listening with their inside voice. It's the father that's prodigal. He gives lavishly to the son. He gives them that which is not his anymore and makes it his again. Nobody does that. Nobody would give a party over one sheep or a coin. Who are these people? They're all prodigals. They're the lavish ones. They profuse abundantly upon them. We're the ones that think it's wasteful. The inside, the church, the older brother, we're the ones that think it's wasteful. It's not economic. Certainly hasn't been earned. And the father continues where all else would stop and say, okay, that's enough. I've done enough for you. You don't deserve to be a son anymore. I'll take your application to work for me like a slave and you'll end up just like your older brother. Maybe not lost in the far country, but lost in the field. See, the father continues where, we else, where everyone else would stop. He goes, he leaves the party just to go out and to be with the older son. I think this is my favorite part of the parable. He says one thing to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It always has been. The, old brother, the older brother misunderstands the father because he misunderstands himself. See, he doesn't believe himself to be as lost as his little brother. His obedience comes from this self-imposed slavery because he will not confess his need. He stayed. He's not his brother. I'm not a sinner who needs to beg anything from you. He's also, by the way, wasted his inheritance because he's never claimed it in the first place. Did the father really have to tell him this after he lived all his life in his house? that the son never figured out that the only reason he's there is because the father woke up one morning and said, everything I have is yours. It always has been. It's been yours since the day you were born, son. You're my son. This is yours. See, we fail to understand that both sons were lost. First son leaves to a far country. The problem, the father's problem with that first son was not what he did with the inheritance, the problem with the son was that he was gone. He wasn't looking for his inheritance to come walking back down the road, he was looking for his kid. You know, and in case you're tempted to think, and I think that some of us do, we're tempted to think that the prodigal father might be welcoming back the son because the son at least repented. I know some of us have thought that in the back of our head. I've heard it preached before, that the reason that he gets it back is because he repented and he said he was sorry. But I want to remind you, his script remind you of his script. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. We might be tempted to think that this sounds like sincere repentance and hence this father will, this this then will make the father treat him like we know it's going to turn out. But I want you to consider this. What if this is actually a complete lack of remorse and not remorse dr levine i've quoted to you before in her book jesus short story says says this here's what i think about junior's lack of remorse i've sinned against heaven and before you those are his words biblically literate listeners hear an echo of those words spoken at another place in the bible where have we heard them before Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Did Pharaoh mean it? No, he was trying to stop the plague. Because as soon as the plague was stopped, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart again, and it started all over. The son uses the same words. The prodigal's no more repentant, has had no more change of heart than Egypt's ruler. I like this. Homiletician David Buttrick concisely summarizes the prodigal's strategy. I'll go to daddy and I'll sound religious. We're always looking to tame the prodigal out of the father. We're always trying to let him off the hook. When all he wants to do is to love and to give to whoever he wishes to do so. It doesn't matter if you've worked 12 hours or one. It doesn't matter to me what you've done with my inheritance. I'll tell you what does matter to him though, is working for him like a slave, he says, that doesn't cut it, you can't do it with me. I don't have slaves, I have children. They belong to me and everything I have belongs to them. She says this, she says, whether the son is sincere or not, his father doesn't care. Any more than the sheep owner cared about the ovine repentance or the woman cared about the emotional state of her found coin. The father preempts the son from reciting the rest of the script he had planned. He's joyful, he wants to celebrate, he wants everyone to share his joy. Why? Because we're reminded of that compassion within, that switch that seems to be hit inside of him whenever anybody needs compassion. It reminds us of the Samaritan who saw a wounded man and reacted with compassion viscerally in his gut according to Luke 10, It's the same reaction Jesus himself has when he sees the funeral possession of the only son of a widow in chapter seven, verse 13. He's walking along, there's a funeral procession heading out and the switch got hit again. And he makes his way over there with his disciples going, well, I guess we're going to a funeral today. He didn't tell him he was gonna stop it The term indicates recognition that one who might be considered dead could become alive. It's in his insides, his nature. Soon to be ours again? I hope so. The older brother is lost out in the field because he's not in the house. The younger son is lost because he's not in the house. Doesn't matter. What they've done, they're not in the house. Neither understand the Father. They both fail to see themselves as a son who the Father loves. Everything I have is yours, he said. The party's for them both. The party's for the insiders and the outsiders. The outsiders are already in the party. Who are the ones standing outside? It's us. Party's for us too. And we could choose not to go in. In fact, Jesus says, you know what? You guys don't even, you don't go in and then you keep other people from going in. But from now on, when you read Luke 15, when you get to the third one, so you know what, this is the parable of the two lost sons and the prodigal father. And when you're done reading the parable, you can go, man, what a prodigal, wasteful father he really is. So we're challenged and listening. What kind of children do we wanna be? What do we want to teach people about our father? How much time and effort do we put in trying to explain or make the Father's infinite inner nature of mercy, compassion, and love, that we try to explain it away by saying that it's metaphorical and and, and that his, his wasteful, prodigal way is wasting it on sinners and we try to make him look more tame. We try to make him look more logical. And we do it. We do it by putting limits that he would never put on the kingdom, we do it by putting limits on even who belongs in this church and who doesn't. What kind of children do we wanna be? This is what it means to live in the end time. This is what it means to be ready for his second coming. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. So I ask myself, I ask about the people in my life. I ask about the people that I know. I ask about people that I have relationships with. What kind of father have I shown them he is? Have I revealed him as he is? Or have I tamed him down? Have I de him? What if it's us that people can't seem to understand God? Two children of the Father, both of them still far away, inside or outside. I'll leave you a note with what she concludes this with it's something that I never realized before, how many times the Bible says a father had two sons. A father had two sons, Cain and Abel. So we realize that to kill an individual is not only to kill a brother, it's to kill a quarter of the world's population. We may have written off Cain, but not only does he survive, he thrives. We may judge him only as guilty, but even he has a story to tell. Cain committed fratricide, but that is not the sum total of who he is. The mark of Cain was a divine protection. If God can protect him, surely we can as well. Can we find it in our hearts to reconcile him to the human family? A father had two sons, Yitzhak and Ishmael. If either is sacrificed, then both were sacrificed. Today, some of the children of Isaac and Ishmael find themselves at odds or at war as the Middle East shows us. Yet these two sons reunite at Abraham's death and together they bury him. Ishmael's hand was to be against his brothers, but Ishmael here proves the prediction wrong. He brings his hand, he puts it back into the hand of his brother in order to bury their father. If Ishmael and Isaac can reconcile, perhaps their children can do the same. A father had two sons, Jacob and Esau. One who stole birthright and blessing, the one who vowed murder and revenge. And yet when Jacob is wounded from his wrestling at the Jabbok River, he encounters Esau and the two of them fall on each other's necks and weep and they reconcile. If they can do it, couldn't every other human do it? A father had two sons. Now we fill in the details. The details can be filled in and filled in by any of us. The scriptures of Israel give us hope for the sons in Luke's parable. They should give us hope for our own reconciliations from the personal to the international. We need to take count not only of our blessings, but also of those in our families and in our communities. And once we count, we need to act. Finding the lost, whether they're sheep, coins, or people, takes work. It also requires our efforts. And from those efforts, there is the potential for wholeness and joy. Those of us who are still with caution standing on the outside of the party, we have to remember that we've been called for one thing and that is to reconcile. To reconcile people to God, to reconcile ourselves to each other, and to bring everybody together who needs to be reconciled. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Everything I have is yours, my son. Come on in that one he was lost and now he's found he was dead and now he's alive for our sake he made him to be he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god older and younger children Let's open the door and go in. Thank you for hanging in there with me today.